Greetings, Trinity Church. Good to see you this morning and be with you this morning. We are in Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. So please get out your copies of the scripture this morning and turn to Acts chapter 4. We're going to be reading verse 1 through 22. Acts chapter 4, verse 1 through 22. Please join me in standing out of honor for the word of God and reverence for his word as we read. Acts chapter 4, verse 1 through 22. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name do you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It's okay to say amen right there. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus, But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people for all were praising God for what had happened for the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. One of our family favorites, one of the stories that we appeal to and reference often in the Funches household is the story of Corey Tinboom, of which most of you are familiar. Corey Tinboom and her watchmaking family, her father, her sister, in the 1930s and 40s, 
decided that what was going on in Germany and in Europe was not right, and they made the courageous, the brave decision to hide in their family business and in their home to hide Jewish refugees, people who were in danger of being captured and sent off to the prison camps. Just normal people, normal, obedient people, but who had decided that there was a higher authority that they needed to obey and made a courageous, a brave decision to hide Jewish people in their home. That hypothetical question has been asked of all of us at some point in time. Would you have been willing to be like Corey Ten Boom? Would you have been willing to hide Jewish people in your home in the middle of the Holocaust? And it's an interesting question, isn't it? It's an interesting, uh, thought-provoking question. But it's not one that really has any effect for us. We're 80 years removed from the Holocaust, and we have the perspective of history. We all know what the right thing would be to do. We, we all can say unreservedly, yes, of course. We would have been brave in that moment because there's, there's very little potential of us actually having to answer that question for real. However, our text today, our text today hits much closer to home for us than the question about whether we would hide Jewish people in our home in the Holocaust. Our text today presents a scenario which should serve to instruct us, serve to inspire all of us who live under the name, under the authority of Jesus Christ. Yet it also confronts us with a reality that should and will make us uncomfortable. Do you know that it's good to be made uncomfortable from time to time? It's good to be uncomfortable when we come to church and we hear God's word preached. It's good to be uncomfortable as long as action is taken in response to that discomfort. When God's word convicts our hearts, we need to respond in repentance with repentance and turning around and making changes to our life. And this text uh, will do that to us today if we allow it. The text before us is a text about authority, about power, a text about recognizing authority and living under and in light of authority. Remember the scenario that we are in here in Acts chapter 4. We are, we are looking today at the response to what's happened in Acts chapter 3. Remember Acts chapter 3 we looked at last week. In Acts chapter 3 we have a miraculous event. A healing of a man at the temple gate. A man who was lame from birth. Peter and John are going into the temple and they encounter this man and they tell him to look at them. And Peter heals this man. This healing causes quite a stir with all the people there, and Peter proclaims that his name, the name of Jesus, has healed this man. His name, Peter says, by faith in his name, has made this man whole. So we have a miraculous event, and then Peter interpreting that event, explaining that event, and what we see is that this man, this lame man, is an object lesson. He is a, he is a living example of what Jesus will do for the people of Israel if they will have faith in his name, if they will believe in Jesus. 
Jesus will heal them. He will raise them up. If they will repent and turn back from their sin, Jesus will make atonement for their sin. He will blot out their sin, Peter says. He will give them or pour out on them times of refreshing. Again, that time of refreshing, I think is speaking of the Holy Spirit and giving the Holy Spirit. It's not talking about something future in a kingdom. It's talking about now. He says, if you will repent and turn back, he will blot out your sins and pour out the times of refreshing upon you. And this Jesus whom heaven has received for a time, Peter says, this Jesus will come and he will be your king and he will establish, restore all things. You will be made whole, Israel. In the second temple period, the period in which this event takes place, there was much writing about the resurrection and about resurrection and what that meant. And for many in this era, it meant a restoration Israel had sinned and had gone into exile, and this restoration of Israel was their resurrection. They're bringing back to life, or they're, they're being brought back to life by God through the king. So Peter explains to them that they can be restored. God will bring in the kingdom that he has promised to them. He will make Israel, and by extension, the world whole again. By faith in the name of Jesus. And that promise is for us as well. How can we be made whole? It's by the name of Jesus. That is where we find full and total forgiveness for sin. That is where we find that time of refreshing, that refreshing, that washing of regeneration. Beautiful picture. This is where we find our hope for the future. That longing we have for all things to be fixed, that longing we have for all things to be made whole, it will be accomplished in the name and under the power, under the authority of Jesus and Jesus alone. So he appeals to Israel. Israel, will Jesus be your king? And the the question is for all of us, will Jesus be your king? That was the message which Peter proclaimed, the message of salvation, real resurrection in the name of Jesus for anyone who would hear and respond in repentance and faith. Now our task today is to look at how the people did respond. How did they respond to this event and to the preaching of Peter? How did they respond? And in this response that we will take into consideration We are given instruction and inspiration and possibly for many of us, we are going to find in this text a rebuke. Here is the main idea. It was funny, we had uh, our youth night on Wednesday night this past week and one of the teenage girls said, because I always ask them, hey, write down notes, write down notes and ask me questions about the sermon, you know, and one of them said, um, Pastor Paul, I didn't get a main idea last week. And I said, the reason you didn't get a main idea is because I didn't state it very clearly and it was a very confusing message. So I, uh, I apologize for that. But here's the main idea. So if you're taking notes, you can't have an excuse this week. Here's your main idea. Here's the main idea. 
those who profess the name of Jesus, those who, who profess to live under his name, those who profess the name of Jesus, are called to proclaim his name with courage, with clarity, and with unyielding conviction. Those who profess the name of Jesus are called to proclaim his name with courage, with clarity, and with conviction. The response to Peter's message in Acts chapter 3 is twofold. Many who heard Peter preach that day believed, as verse 4 says. Look at verse 4. Many of those who had heard the word, heard what Peter preached, believed. What a glorious verse. Many who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Now, some people think this is in addition to the 3,000 that we see in Acts chapter 2. Some people think this is a, a round estimate of all those total. Either way, it's a lot of people. A lot of people have believed the word that they have heard, responded positively. However, the focus of this text is on the other response, the response of the Jewish leadership. And in this response, we see the first formal opposition to the message of King Jesus and the message of his kingdom, the first formal opposition to the message of Jesus. And it's important for us to note exactly where this opposition is coming from. Look at verse 1. And as they, that is Peter and John, were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple, that is the temple police, and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed, greatly irritated. They were not happy because Peter and John were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. So it gives a description of the people who arrested Peter and John. The Sadducees, the Sadducees are the ones emphasized here. The Sadducees are the powerful political party of that day. So if, you, if you've read the Gospels, you have encountered the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now the Pharisees and the Sadducees don't like each other. They're political opponents. They're against one another. And the Sadducees are the politically powerful group. They control the temple mount. They're the ones who control the priesthood. The high priest comes out of their number. So the priests and the Sadducees, they work together. When Jesus goes into the temple and overturns the money changers, that greatly irritates the Sadducees. The captain of the temple, the temple police, work for the priests and do the bidding of the Sadducees. So the Sadducees have a significant amount of political power in that day. They are the Jewish aristocracy. They're the wealthy, okay? The Sadducees are the wealthy ones. They are the ones who are well-connected. They are politically conservative. You hear that? Politically conservative, by that, what I mean is they are not interested in rocking the boat. They want things to stay the same as they have been. And they look to Rome for their stability. They work very closely with Rome. In fact, Rome are, are the ones, Rome is the one who's given them 
their power and their freedom to operate. So they are not interested in undermining the system that lines their pockets and gives them comfort and gives them power. The Sadducees are also adamantly opposed to the doctrine of the resurrection. And and we could explain all that goes on in that opposition to resurrection. But here, here it is summarized. The Sadducees are not in favor of a restoration of Israel. No, they're, they're not interested in a kingdom coming to overthrow Rome. The Pharisees would be very interested in a resurrection or the restoration of Israel, which is what the resurrection pictures and speaks of. The Sadducees don't want any of that. They are happy with Israel as it is, dependent upon Rome, subjugated to Rome. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees are political enemies. The only thing that they can agree on, the only thing that the the Pharisees and the Sadducees can agree on is that they don't want Jesus or those who follow him to cause any problems for themselves. The resurrection, the preaching of the resurrection, see how how awesome this is. The preaching of Jesus' resurrection offends at the same time both parties. Jesus is offensive to them, and by extension, those who follow Jesus are offensive to them. And it is these powerful leaders, the, Fer- the, the Sadducees, who arrest Peter and John and now want to interrogate them. The text sets the scene as a show of authority. Do do you see how many there are against Peter and John? Look at it. Verse 5. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. It's a show of force. The authority that this high priestly family and all of their people, all these leaders, possess against these two common men. They get these men and set them in the midst. They're going to interrogate these men. The question that they ask is a question of authority. Look at it there in verse number seven. When they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Just just think about this scene. Can you picture it in your mind? All of these powerful men, all of these well-connected men, these are These are the men of Jerusalem, the movers and the shakers, the ones who get things done and who make things go. These are the powerful men, and they are many in number. And here are Peter and John sitting in their midst, and they are questioning them. And here's the question, who do you think you are? By what power or in whose name did you do this? And this is where I want you to see the courage of Peter. The courage of Peter in his response. Remember, only a couple of months before this. Do you know your Bibles well enough to remember what happened just a couple of months before this? 
Just a couple of months before this very scene, Peter was in the presence of some of these very same men. Very same ones. These men were the ones instrumental in arresting Jesus and putting him to trial. Remember, they took Jesus to the high priest's house, the same guy. They took Jesus to the high priest's house, and Peter followed. And they made a fire there in the courtyard, and Peter kind of snuck in and warmed himself by the fire just close enough to hear what was going on and the questioning of Jesus. And while he was standing around that fire, three times somebody looked at him and said, Hey, aren't you with Jesus? Aren't you one of his people? And three times Peter vehemently denied that he had anything to do with Jesus. No, I don't know, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Not me. I'm not with him. And now two, three, four months later, Peter is standing in the midst of the entire high priestly family with all the powerful leaders in Jerusalem bearing down on him, asking him in whose authority he acts. And Peter's response could not be more different than it was just a few months before. His response is courageous. Notice it's a spirit-filled courage. You see that? Then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. It's a spirit-filled courage. And I think this is important. It's putting the emphasis where it should be in Peter's response. Peter didn't just grow hair on his chest. Peter didn't just man up. Peter is filled with the Spirit. He is not fleshly in his response or self-willed in his response. His bravery isn't bravado. He's not cocky. He's not trying to put these people in their place disrespectfully. He's a spirit-filled man. Here the emphasis is upon the work of the Spirit in his life. Not his abilities, but on the Spirit's impact upon his life. You know what hope this gives all of us? Because you and I have the same Spirit that Peter had. You and I have the same Spirit that Peter has. And what spirit, what does this spirit produce in us? 2 Timothy 1, 7 and 8, Paul tells Timothy, For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. You know what the spirit-filled life looks like? It looks like one of self-control, power and love and self-control. Paul goes on to say, therefore, because of this, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Peter's filled by the Spirit. Look at his Spirit-filled response. Read it there. In verse number 8, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, 
If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, King Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. His courage, Peter's courage, is spirit-filled courage, and as a result, his courage displays a wisdom, an ability, a perception, an ability to answer that charge being laid on him. Here, I don't know if you heard it or not, do you see how he manifests the same quality of perception demonstrated by the Lord when the Lord was approached by Jewish leadership? He gets to the actual question that they have. He understands that what, what's at stake is not, they're, they're not interested in how this man was healed. Who, what they're interested in is in preserving their power and their authority. And he gets right to the point. How many ways? Think about the political season that we're in right now. How many ways are there to deflect or to avoid a question, a direct question. It seems that's the normal way for politicians to respond. When you ask me a question, I'm going to do everything I can to not answer your question. Deflect, misdirect, answer a different question. Make you feel stupid for asking me that question. Can you repeat the question? I don't understand what you're asking. Peter does the opposite. Peter actually understands the question that they are asking. Do you know a lot of times when people ask us a question, there's a question behind the question. And we need that perception and we need that intuitiveness. We need that insight to not be distracted with the question that really is on top of the real question. This is part of being an effective witness for Christ. Peter's spirit-filled response is a courageous response. It's a courageous response of wisdom and insight, perception. And in his answer, Peter's courage is unashamed. Unashamed to be identified with the name of Jesus. Again, remember just a few months before, he was, he was ashamed to be identified with Jesus, but now he is unashamed to be identified with the name of Jesus and to lay the guilt for his death on the doorstep of all of these men who have gathered to question him. He's unashamed to declare that it is Jesus who has the authority here. Again, not brash, not disrespectful, but direct wise, unashamed. Are you direct with your witness? Are you direct in how you answer questions about your faith? Or do people even ask you questions about your faith? Are you direct with how you testify to the name of Jesus? Or are we more like Peter around the fire 
at the high priest's house, not really wanting to be identified with Jesus, doing everything we can to deflect and to, to squirm out of any direct association with Jesus. If we were to meet your friends in your neighborhood, those people you associate with, your coworkers, and we were to tell them how committed you were to the name of Jesus, would they be surprised by that? Again, this is not disrespectful or brash or cocky. Peter's not angry as he testifies to Jesus. He's courageous. He's unashamed. He's wise. He's direct. How often we deflect or misdirect or fudge a little around our answers or answer so generically that no one would accuse us of being unashamedly connected to the name of Jesus. We don't want to be one of those people. Peter, though manifests spirit-filled courage, dependent upon the spirit of God, and Peter displays a clarity of message. His message is clear. Now this goes back to what I said about getting to the heart of the real question. Peter heard what they were asking, but he knows that what they are challenging is the authority of Jesus. Look at how he responds. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. This quotation is more than likely from Psalm 118, verse 22, but also has connections with Isaiah 28 and Zechariah 10. Isaiah 28 is a, uh, Isaiah 28 is a glorious passage where God talks about the leaders of Israel being judged. This Old Testament theme of a stone rejected by the Jewish leadership, which will then rise up and judge those who have rejected him. Now, here's the idea. So here's the picture. The Jewish leadership is pictured in these passages as those who are tasked with building God's kingdom, building the people. This stone is presented to them And they do not see this stone as profitable for their building of God's kingdom. They are presented with a stone that they see as unfit. They judge to be unfit for their task. But God takes that stone and actually makes that stone the cornerstone, the head stone, the foundation of all that he's building. Jesus is the one that was rejected by the Jewish leadership. The Jewish leadership saw Jesus and what Jesus was preaching and proclaiming as unfit for their plans. But as we saw in Acts chapter 2, God has declared him to be both Lord and Christ. He is the head of the building. He is the foundation of God's work. He is the chief cornerstone, as Ephesians says, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. 
So here Peter stands with those who are in control of the Temple Mount, those who have the say in Jerusalem. He stands in the presence of those who have the authority over the temple with men that think they are the keepers or the builders of the temple. And Peter is telling them, you rejected the one who is really building the temple of God. Jesus is the authority over you. Jesus is building the kingdom, the people of God, not you. You have been rejected by the one, by the stone you rejected. You have been rejected by the chief corner stone. The Jewish leadership, hearing what Peter says, they could not miss his point. They understand what Peter is saying. Peter has a good handle on the Old Testament scriptures. And then look at how he finishes. Look at how he finishes. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And then verse 12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter's message is clear. Salvation is found in no one else. No other name, authority, power under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, in Peter's day, he was challenging with spirit-filled, wise, unashamed courage. He was challenging the power of the Jewish leadership. He was challenging their entire structure and system of worship. He was challenging their authority and power. Isn't that what the message of salvation is ultimately about? Who has the power? Who has the authority to forgive sin? It is only the one who has the power to condemn. The one with the power is the only one who can save, truly save. That's what the question of salvation is all about. And he made his challenge with clarity. There is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. There's no other authority to be recognized. But do you see, so in Peter's day, he was challenging the Jewish leadership. You and I probably, I'm guessing, you and I are probably not going to be brought before the Jewish leadership and asked the same questions. That'd be a little weird. We live in 21st century America. But do you see the timelessness of this message the timelessness of this message in its offense. The exclusivity of this message, exclusivity of this message. What does it look like to proclaim this message in our day? We're not going to be brought before the Jewish leadership, but we are brought before many others in every day of our life. We're not challenging the authority of Jewish leadership like Peter, but we are called to challenge all that would seek to rival the authority of Jesus in our day. The message that we proclaim is an exclusive message. And I think that we fail in presenting the message with the same clarity that Peter does. Now, where do the rivals for authority in our day come from? What rivals the authority of Jesus in our day? Let me ask it this way. Where do people get their beliefs about what is important in life? 
who or what decides for people what is of value in life, what the appropriate goals should be. What determines reality? Let me ask it directly of you. What determines reality for you? What decides for you what is important or valuable? An epistemological question, a word that we were talking about at Youth Night the other night. Big word, right? It just means where do you get your knowledge? Where, where do you know what you know? Where do you get what you know from? Where do you get? What is your source of knowledge? What is it that you give authority to for the knowledge that you seek in life to answer the questions of life? These are all questions of authority. And authority doesn't have to come from someone with a title or recognized place of authority. In fact, most of the time it does not. Most of the time, we look to other things to give us authority, not the people in authority. Just ask the middle school boy why he wants to dress the way he dresses. Or ask the high school girl why she is devastated by a certain social event in her life. And doesn't matter how much reason you give her. doesn't matter how much you explain to her that it's okay. It's not that big of a deal. It's going to be all right. By the way, if your daughter is, is 16 and she has a devastating day, don't try to go in and explain to her how everything's all right. It's okay. It's no big deal. For her, it's a huge deal. But why is it a huge deal? Why are we impacted in the way that we dress or what our house looks like or what our car looks like or, or what our job looks like and how much money we make? Why, why do we care about all those things? Regardless of what we hear and regardless of the truth that we hear from other people who tell us, this, this is not what you ought to live for. Oh no, there's another authority in our life. I could ask it this way. What influences you? What influences you? Who do you give influence to in your life? What truly influences you in the way that you live? What influences you in the way you act? The way you think? That's the big one. What influences you in the way that you think? What influences you in the choices that you make and the goals that you set? Where do we find authoritative voices in our life? Where are the places we find those authoritative influences in our life? Culture, for sure. We, we live in a culture that is constantly speaking against the authority of Jesus and rivaling his authority. And we're all impacted by culture. There's no way we can get out of it. We're impacted by culture. We're impacted by the family we grew up in. Are you hearing that? The family you grew up in is an important part of who you are. But the family that you grew up in is constantly rivaling the authority of Jesus. It's very possible that the way you grew up is not actually recognizing the authority of Jesus. And needs to be challenged. Your culture challenges your authority 
or the authority of Jesus and your submission and allegiance to that authority. Your family and the way you grew up. Your vocation. Your job. Your career. Your vocation challenges often the authority of Jesus. The things that you think are important because of the vocation, the vocation, the career that you've chosen rivals the authority of Jesus in your life. Very often, social circles, our friendships, those people that are important to us. I mentioned a moment ago the teenage girl who's devastated because of a social event that happens in her day and it's all consuming. Why is that? Because she's given the authority not to her mother or father, not to the ones who should be her authority, but she's given the authority and influence to the social voices in her life. And it's true for many of us. Media, social media, the authority, the authoritative voices in our life come from social media. This week, my wife and I were laughing at you know the Elon Musk takeover of Twitter. I have never tweeted anything in my life. And I, I've read maybe half a dozen tweets in my life, knowingly. It just doesn't impact me. And yet, it's like $44 billion to buy Twitter. And every, is this like the big deal? What's going to happen? My wife and I just show how culturally irrelevant we are, right? Irrelevant we are to the culture because we have no idea. To me, it's silly. But why? Because the voices through social media, TikTok, Twitter, the, these, these voices are powerful. And whoever controls these voices controls the public. Are you controlled by those same voices? I mean, in everything. Who tells you how to parent your children? Where are you getting that authority from or that influence from? Who tells you what job you should have or why you should work the hours that you do? Who, who sets that agenda for you? Who are you listening to? So this brings in a very important concept. This question of who is the authority of your life brings in a very important concept that I think presents even a, a, a more subtle, dangerous challenge to the sole authority of Jesus, and that is the concept of syncretism. Do you know what syncretism is? Syncretism is when you take two or more beliefs and you combine them to form a new belief. Syncretism is when we take two ideas or more and put them together to form a new idea, a new belief, Let me give you an illustration that's just really easy and plain, and I think helpful for us. When I, when I grew up in the churches I grew up in, there were two flags on the stage. Two flags every week. You know what those two flags were? Right? On one side was the American flag, and on the other side was the Christian flag. Pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with life and liberty for all, you know. And then you... I just went into the Christian flag there. Then you go to the Christian flag. I pledge allegiance. This is, what, this is what we were taught to do. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. 
and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. I pledge allegiance to the flag. And then I would go over to this side, right? I pledge allegiance to the Christian flag and to the Savior for whose kingdom it stands. Listen, where's your allegiance? You can't have two allegiances. That, that in and of itself doesn't work. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America is not Christian. That is not honoring the authority of Jesus. He is the authority. Not the Republic of the United States. And I'm not, I'm not angry. I'm just being adamant here. This passionate. Because do, do you understand? You can't have two allegiances. Jesus says very clearly, you can't have two masters. And yet in our culture, syncretism is very accepted. It's very common. Oh, I have the name of Jesus ruling over my life, and yet I'm going to read and use and submit to the authority of all these other voices in how I live. No, it it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. The, The question is very... Very clear. To whom belongs your allegiance? Where is your authority? Whose banner do you fly under? And that's it. What divides your loyalties? What name or influence or power do you live under while you profess the name of Jesus? As John was saying in our liturgy, do you bear his name in vain? As you fly his colors and yet live under the rule and authority of someone else. Peter is clear with his message. There is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. There is one name who has the authority He is courageous, he is clear, and he's convinced. Peter's response to the Jewish leadership, his response has an astonishing effect. Look at what look at what happens there. Verse thirteen. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, when they saw their courage when they saw their boldness and perceived that they were uneducated common men. They saw the courageous and clear message of Peter and John and they also recognized that they were common and uneducated. You see, the men that they were standing in front of were educated, well-connected, wealthy men. And they we're listening to men who are common, uneducated, and they were answering with wisdom and perception and courage. The proclamation of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior doesn't belong to the seminarians. It doesn't belong to the educated people necessarily. Do you see that Peter and John were common? One writer says, God must have loved common men because he made so many of them. That's who all of us are, really. Common, 
nothing special about us. I love uneducated. Now, I am for education. I believe that we should be careful with how we educate our children and educate ourselves. This is what I was talking about with authority. When you, when, do you realize that when you seek education, you're submitting yourself to an authority, a voice of authority and influence? That's what education is all about. You're being discipled under your professors and under your teachers. You're being discipled by them, their life and their message. That's what education is all about. These men, Peter and John, Peter was a fisherman, remember? His world was fishing. He had no business standing there answering these men the way he did. But he did. Common and uneducated. And Peter's response put them in a corner. The man that they had healed was standing right next to them. Everybody knew who this man was because he sat at that gate every day. They knew who he was. They knew he had been healed. There's nothing they could say. And Peter hadn't helped them out. Do you see that? Peter hadn't helped them out by losing his head or making threats or backing down and being quiet. He had forced their hand. And they couldn't say anything because of the miracle that had been accomplished. They couldn't argue. So they dismissed Peter and John and huddled up. They counseled together. Look at what they do. They say, what shall we do with these men? What are we going to do? So much like what their response to Jesus often was. What are we going to do? If we, if we say this, he's going to catch us here. And if we say that, he's going to catch us here. What are we going to do? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Everybody knows it. It's plain. And we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them. We're going to double down on our authority. Let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them, Peter and John back, and charged them to not speak, not to speak or teach at all in the name, in the authority of Jesus. Now these men, these Jewish leaders have the power to set Peter and John free. The only thing that they are commanding is that Peter and John go forth and no longer speak in the name or the authority of Jesus. But look at the conviction of Peter and John. Look at what they say. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Their conviction rests on the fact that they serve the ultimate authority. They serve the highest of authorities. They've been commissioned by Christ himself, by the Lord himself, to be his witnesses on earth. And that is the the authority that they listen to. That is the authority they submit to. God has given them a directive. And they recognize God's authority in the name of Jesus, his king. 
They say to the Sadducees, if you want to see yourself as being above God, if you want to see yourself as being over God, that is up to you. But we must speak of what we've seen and heard. We must preach the name of Jesus. We must proclaim what we have seen and heard. Are you convinced of that necessity this morning? Are you convinced of the necessity that is upon us, the obligation that is upon us, the necessity of proclaiming his name? Because we too have been given directive by God. This is our responsibility. And, and, and it is for our city and for our region. And we are to be involved in the proclamation of that name even to the world. That is our responsibility. And this conviction rests in the authority, the highest authority, and his command to us to preach the name of Jesus Repentance and forgiveness of sin in his name. Are you convinced of the necessity? You feel that obligation upon your life. And there you have the second grounding of their conviction. Their conviction rests upon the fact that they serve the ultimate authority. And by the way, just just a, a note on that. That... That isn't meant to be used to justify your disobedience to the government. This is, this is not a passage justifying your disobedience to the government that God has given in his sovereignty over us. We are to submit to all authorities. We, we are to be obedient to our authorities that God has given us. And yet, when our authorities tell us not to proclaim the name of Jesus any longer, that is where we draw the line. Because this is what God has given us to do. But it's it's not a justification for just throwing off all the authority of the government. We need to be careful with that, especially in the culture that we live here in the inland northwest. I wish that Christians were as adamant about the need, the necessity of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ as they were about their constitutional rights. What is your authority? We must preach the name of Jesus. We must proclaim what we have seen and heard. And there you have the second grounding of their conviction. They could not neglect... They could not neglect what they had seen and heard. You may have noticed that I skipped a sentence when I was reading the reaction of the Sadducees to Peter's defense. Look at it there. They were astonished. They, were, they perceived that they were uneducated common men and, and they recognized that these men had been with Jesus. They could not neglect what they had seen and heard. The Sadducees were astonished at the boldness and ability these uneducated men had and had displayed. But it also says they recognized that these men had been with Jesus. Peter and John had been with Jesus. They sounded like him. They reasoned like him. 
were bold like he was. They were resolute like he was. They were convinced like he was. The imprints of Jesus were on them. And Peter and John say they cannot neglect to speak of what they have seen and heard. They were with Jesus. They saw his life. They saw, they witnessed his death. And they saw, they witnessed his resurrection. And they saw, they witnessed his ascension. And they could not help. He says, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. I can't help but musing as I was thinking on this. Is, is, this, is this why we don't witness? Is this why we don't witness? Is, is it because we haven't seen or heard? Have we forgotten what we have heard? What we have seen by faith? Have we forgotten what has been proclaimed to us? Have we forgotten the salvation that has been given to us in the name of Jesus? Have, have we forgotten Or maybe it's that we cannot be accused of spending time with Jesus. Do you spend time with Jesus? Does your life look like Jesus? Has his imprint taken shape in your life? They could not neglect what they had seen and heard and what they had seen and heard had shaped them and everything about them. Are we courageous in our witness? Do we have that spirit-filled courage? Wise, not brash, not offensive, but unashamed, direct. Not ashamed, to speak plainly, courageous. Do we realize that our courageous testimony will offend and will cost us? But as we see pictured for us here, persecution, persecution and suffering is part of what it means to proclaim the name of Jesus. Are we courageous in our witness? Are we clear in our witness? Has, has the danger of syncretism crept into our life in our witness and hindered our witness for Jesus? Are we professing? This is, you know, we read, we read the verse There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And all of us go, amen, amen. He's the only way of salvation. But it doesn't go beyond that for us. We have stated theology. We have a stated belief. But what is the functioning, ruling principle of your life? We say the right things. We got the right books on our shelf. Go into our homes and we have all the right books on our shelf. And yet, the ruling, functioning, ruling principle of our life does not match with what we 
declare, what we profess. And our witness is not effective. Are we courageous? Are we clear, both in our words and in our life? And are we convinced, like Peter and John, are we convinced of his authority? Are we convinced of the necessity, the obligation that is upon us? Have you been changed and transformed by Jesus? Are you convinced of his power because you've seen his power work transformation in your life? And I think that's where a lot of us are. Again, our stated beliefs are really good, but the functioning ruling principles of our life don't match. And honestly, we're not actively being transformed by the power of Jesus' name in our life. And in effect, his name has no power in our life. And I think we believe it really doesn't have the power for others in their lives. Father, we do thank you for this word. We thank you for this example set before us of Peter and John who stood in that day bold, courageous, clear, convinced, not arrogant, not brash, but direct and unashamed. I pray that you would take your word, convict us, rebuke us where we need to be rebuked, encourage us where we need to be encouraged. Give us that encouragement by your spirit. We have that same spirit. And we are but common, common people. Thank you for choosing to work your will and this testimony to Jesus through common people. I pray that you would convict us and heal us even this morning. And I pray for those who are here who live under the power of others, the power and the authority of voices that they have allowed to influence them. I pray that today they would submit to the authority of Jesus alone And I pray that for for Christians, those of us who profess Jesus as our Lord and Savior, I pray that you would convict us of where we have really embraced two or more allegiances in our life. And for those who are not in Christ this morning, those who are lost in their sin, dead in their sin, that they would hear the message that they can be saved but only in the name of Jesus. Because of what Jesus has done in his death and resurrection, they can have their sins forgiven and be made right with you, God. I pray that that would occur today, that they would submit their lives under the name of Jesus and be forgiven, repent of their sin and be forgiven of their sin today. We pray for your glory. And I pray for Trinity Church. I pray that we would be people committed to this message and the courageous proclamation, 
clear proclamation of this message. We pray you do this by your grace. Amen.